How was China? Full of surprises. Lex, what happened? Even though getting pistol whipped wasn't exactly my idea of fun, I have to admit, it's good to have the old dad back. No, I, I had nothing to do with what happened to you in China, son. I have abandoned my search for the stones. Come on, dad. You sold copies of my map and gave them to Alana and Jason. You used them. No, Lex, it was you who was using them. And you'll do far worse to find those stones. You have a ferocious desire to find all the answers, son. But don't let your search for those stones turn into your own personal Tower of Babel. I'm not trying to get closer to God, Dad. I'm trying to solve the riddle he's laid out for me. Do you ever think there might be a reason why we weren't given the answers? To challenge us? Or maybe to humble us. Knowledge comes from finding the answers, yes, but understanding what the answers mean is what brings wisdom. Men who didn't understand the difference have been the ruin of some of the world's greatest civilizations. Is that why you stopped looking for the stones? Because you're afraid? No, no. I stopped because I realized that even if I find these stones, I'm not going to find what I'm really looking for. Neither will you. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fancast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio, each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable and join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. I'm Daniel Spencer. Uh, I was on the previous season um, on the Crisis episode, um, and I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you back as well. Uh, You know, lots of changes in the world since last time we got together, but our love love of Smallville continues. Uh, So always excited to have you back with me. Uh, We're going to kick off a great comfort show. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. I I agree with that. So we're going to kick off with our pass the torch questions. We always do. So last week, Maria wanted me to ask you if you were to get a super strength or excuse me, super strong animal companion, what animal would you choose and why? So red pandas are my favorite animal. Uh, So I would would very much like a, a red panda. Uh, but something more practical would probably be like a gorilla or something like that. that I could actually like, ride on if they could run mm. super fast or do anything like that. So <laughs> I'd probably go with a gorilla. Yeah. I mean, those things are just normal strength are uh, pretty terrifying and, and, you know, powerful. My first instinct is cat because I'm, I'm, I'm a cat and a dog person. But, you know, cats, again, it's battle cat. I'm thinking of He-Man battle cat. I don't know to ride around <laughs> a giant tiger. But as much as I love cats, they're kind of murder animals. Like, you know, if you had a super strong murder animal, I think things could go bad. I like the idea of a monkey or, or any of the apes. You know, they're, they're really smart. They have 
opposable thumbs. Some of them have prehensile tails. They can be very useful. Ferret. Who wouldn't want a super strong ferret running around? Uh, <laughs> but I think I'm going to go boring and just settle with, I think, dog. Like, I, I think my own version of a crypto because they're smart enough, but not too smart to, like, want to overthrow you. Uh, they can be trained. They're very loyal. And if you had one that could, you know, shoot lasers out of its eyes and, you know, bite through things, very handy. So I want to settle on boring and go with dog. That's a great one. Yeah, I definitely focused on that companion part of the question to make sure that the gorilla wasn't going to attack me in my sleep. (laughs) I have to say, I'm not super familiar with Red Panda, but in my social media feed, I've come across several of them standing with their arms above their head. And that is the cutest thing I've ever seen. It is. It's great. (laughs) So uh, our uh, Smallville Super Superlative, I keep changing the name, but we know what it is uh, for this episode. I'm actually going with the best, the best Lionel Lex conversation. I think we get a really good one. We did it as our cold open. I loved that conversation back and forth. And over seasons one through four, there are some really good ones. So what I'm asking you, dear listener, is to nominate your favorite Lex Lionel conversation. There'll be a link in the um, show notes in the tweet, Twitter and the Facebook and Reddit for the Google link as well. So if you'd like to submit that, I would appreciate it. So with that out of the way, we're going to jump into the show. We're going to open our Smallville yearbook and see who our notable guest stars are. Hey, Clark. Look who came to check up on you. Terrence Stamp reprises his role as the voice of Jor-El. We also have Byron Mann as Commander Chang and Michelle Goh as Professor Sen. I will note that actually Byron has been on the show before. He was Kern in the Insurgents episode. I don't know if that speaks more about us as ignorant Americans just not realizing that dude has been there multiple times or if it's just like he's really good and they like him. I don't know. Yeah, I'm guilty of that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I didn't recognize him either until I saw all the show notes. Um, so it's now time to grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet, check the bylines and see who brought us this episode. I mean, that's a story that could land you a byline on the front page of the Daily Planet. So we're here today to discuss season four, episode 15, Sacred. The date of original airing was February 23rd, 2005. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Seigel and Joe Schuster, and Smallville was created by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. The writer for this episode was Kelly Souders and Brian Peterson. And the director is Brad Turner for his only episode. Alrighty. Daniel, are you now ready to explore the Quachi Caves to get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? Let's go for the second time. Let's do it. After learning that Jason and Lex are in China searching for one of the mysterious crystals, Clark and Lana fall in the hopes of finding one first. And that's great and all, but it doesn't tell us what we really need to know. So let's dig a little deeper into these caves and ask the important questions. Does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? No. Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason? Yes. So many this episode. Does this episode feature someone in a hospital bed? No. Does this episode feature Clark telling or showing someone besides his forever crush Lon his powers and abilities? So I had no, but technically it's yes, because it's the Countess, but she already knows. So I would actually say say yes here. Yeah, agreed. And then follow up. Does that person lose their memory, die, or otherwise become a confidant of Clark? And I guess they just, they already knew. Yeah, and they their memory is uh, interesting because it comes out randomly whenever she's actually inhabiting Lana. So I don't know how that would work. Yeah. It's another one of those, Uh, does this episode feature Clark using his powers irresponsibly? I I would say it's debatable, but yeah. Uh, Does Clark Clark casually break and enter a business or residence? Yeah, you you, you could argue in the temple. Yeah. Uh, Does this episode feature a moment where a character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? Yes. 
Uh, does this episode feature a conversation between two people or one person has their back to the other and is weirdly talking over the shoulder? Surprisingly, no. Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one or more of our characters? Possibly, but it's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I put if the if you count the countess looking at the stone, uh, does this episode feature a cheeky bit of dialogue that hints at or directly references the water Superman mythos? I actually didn't find one, so that maybe is a holdover. I I would say no, but I'm not sure if maybe I missed it. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think you could. I mean, this is a bit of a stretch as well with the the flapping of the red um, kind of handkerchief underneath the stone, but that's a really big stretch. Yeah, I think so as well. Uh, does this episode feature a moment with a needle drop, where in a contemporary song circulate? perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires not at all the score is pretty good but there's not a whole lot of songs in there yeah i don't think there's any true needle drops in this entire episode um, and then finally does this episode feature a classic smallville leap of logic wherein the characters jump to a correct conclusion around who or what is behind a mysterious event or otherwise solves a problem with little to no actual information to base such conclusions also surprisingly no yeah i don't think so either Alrighty, so let's jump into the episode cold open. Martha wants Clark to make some decisions about his future. And while she means apply to college, Clark's future comes knocking in the form of a package from Dr. Swan. Just as the Kents learn from a TV broadcast that Dr. Swan has died, Clark opens the package to find a letter from Dr. Swan and the spaceship key. Clark takes the key to the caves and speaks with Jor-El and learns that if a human finds the stones of power and unites them first, it could destroy the world. So cold open here. What would you like to talk about, Daniel? So I, I was kind of going in the direction of uh, Martha, her little kind of monologue to Clark at the very beginning about college. And she calls out Lois being out of town and that, that kind of being an, an excuse for Clark to procrastinate, which I thought was interesting. I don't know how that's supposed to line up with him not doing his uh, college applications, but I don't know if there is a different interpretation of that. You know, I, at this point, I don't think that there's anything romantic between Clark and Lois, but Martha always seems to be the one who is sort of like wanting Clark to get into relationships. And maybe she's already picked up that maybe they're sort of like almost brother, sister, familiar, pitter patter. There is something already a little bit there, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I know that they talk about the farm chores and stuff like that because he's super speeding around the farm. And so they talk about Lois not being there for that, but. I mean, <laughs> that could be a very good interpretation, but he can just do his chores normally during the day. So he has more time to devote to these types of things, potentially. But yeah, it is, I mean, it is a little bit of an odd comment. Like, why would she co- keep him from doing this? Seems right. kind of weird, but yeah. All right. When we find out that Dr. Swan has passed away via the TV broadcast, which again, super convenient that Clark gets the package seconds before <laughs> this news broadcast, whatever. But Clark says, I, you know, I can't believe it. I just talked to him last week. So I think the show wants us to think that Clark and Dr. Swan have had a continual conversation going on back and forth, which does kind of make sense. But it's also weird that the show never really talks about that. Like he's in episodes and there are plot points, but I never saw anything to make me think that Dr. Swan and Clark were in regular communication, but I guess they were. Right. And also, I mean, he's not getting a whole lot of information from Dr. Swan anymore. So are they kind of just doing you know, weekly checkups or something like that about how each other are doing. Yeah, because yeah, there's no big revelations anymore, but I, I don't know. It seems kind of interesting. We do get the line where Clark says something about, you know, he felt like he had so much more to learn from him. And Martha says, We can be thankful for everything he did pass on to you. And I feel like this was more of a Christopher Reeve comment because he, the actor did pass away 
not too long before this episode, um, which is probably why they had the Dr. Swan character die because Christopher Reeve died. So I kind of feel like this was more of the show saying thank you to Christopher Reeve, who certainly by being on the show did sort of lend a passing of the torch quality that Tom Welling is the new Clark, is the new Superman, and that by Christopher Reeve agreeing to be on the show, tacitly sort of gave him that. And I feel like, I mean, as always, I could be reading way too much into it, but I feel like that's what they were saying there. Yeah, definitely agree. And I, I really like that take. And that's kind of my new headcanon, I guess, uh, because it's it's pretty nice to have that nod to Christopher Reeve. And I actually really like Dr. Swan's character in general. I think that he was uh, portrayed really well. And I don't know, actually, if it's in the comics, I haven't um, checked into that. But his character is really good at, at kind of exploring Clark's past. And we don't get a whole lot of that in the first few seasons. So it's really mm-hmm. nice to see. Yeah, I do think... You know, again, I've said this many times that the writers didn't know they were going to get 10 seasons. They obviously didn't know that Christopher was going to pass away. But it makes me think that if they had had all this foreknowledge, they were to go back now and rewrite everything with this information. What could they or would they have done with the Swan character? Because it's very interesting that you have this person who's truly unconnected to Clark in any way. And he seems to be the only person on the planet that we're ever introduced to that learned these things like they just he figured it out he and he intercepted the signal he deciphered kryptonian language when no one else ever has and if it wasn't for him there's so much that clark wouldn't know it's just it's an interesting character to have another human with this much influence on clark's destiny outside of his parents because for me this is a new twist like i'm not i haven't read every comic i don't know everything but it i don't remember this from any of my other experiences with the mythos that this other human character had so much of an influence it's kind of an interesting twist Definitely. But yeah, that's, those things are what makes Smallville great. I mean, pulling away from the mythos a little bit and introduce new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key elements for me in this, um, this scene was when Clark was reading out the email that he got from Dr. from the, sorry, not the email, the message that he got from Dr. Swan. Kalel, I wish I could continue this journey with you, but now you must seek out your father. And we see Jonathan's face and his expression at that moment. And it's, it's kind of anguished. And I do also think that's kind of interesting that in Dr. Swan's point of view, you know, Jor-El, of course, is Clark's father. But we've had this back and forth that Jonathan's his father. Yeah, and I think later in the episode, he says, you know, your biological father. So I just, I don't know, I just liked Jonathan's facial expression there when this other third party just says, you know, Jor-El is your father and how Jonathan reacts to that. Yeah, definitely. And you can see some kind of almost like fear as well. And it Mm. it, it continues on throughout the episode, but uh, it kind of lends credence to the whole issue with him getting the powers um, at the end of season two or beginning of season three to bring Clark back from Metropolis. So it's it's a good nod. Jonathan has this weight on his shoulders or in his heart, as you will, um, (laughs) that, you know, he made an agreement with Jarrell to bring Clark back. And at some point, that's going to come due. The bill's going to come due, as Baron Mordo likes to say, uh, if you're a Marvel fan as well. So it, I, think, I think that also could be read into that. That's just, once again, putting Jor-El in their lives, where for a while he was kind of out. And typical Clark fashion, there's a lot of flip-flopping, I think, that he just sort of like just starts to make these wild proclamations about things that I don't know that we've earned. Uh, about how, you know, Jor-El might be right and all these trials may be for a reason type of a thing. But I do like to see Jonathan, or I don't, don't like to see it, but I do think Jonathan or John Schneider did a good job of 
letting us see what's going on, the anguish that he's feeling for maybe, maybe multiple reasons. So Clark takes the spaceship key, which I don't know, I guess we should call it other things now because it's not the spaceship key anymore. It's just like a key back to the caves. He goes to the hidden altar where the stones of power could be united. I think at this point there's one there still just the one. Right. Uh, but he puts the ship key in and we get a conversation with Jorel. He gets, you know, Clark is in this void of space, but he's surrounded by light. And we hear the voice of Jorel is portrayed by Terrence Stamp. And eventually what we learn, uh, he says something about that, you know, you're the last of a great civilization. And Clark's like, yeah, a great civilization that destroyed itself, which I think, you know, good on you, Clark. Fair true. Uh, but we learned that essentially the entire Kryptonian knowledge has been encoded on these stones and that if any humans will find them, uh, they could reunite them. It could basically destroy the world. So Clark can save the world by finding them first. But one of my questions here is there's a whole bunch of this that doesn't make sense to me. And maybe I'm just not smart enough. Always an option that Michael's just a dummy, but these stones were encoded with the knowledge of the civilization and put on earth at least as of the 1600s, right? That's, that's when the Countess was alive. And, and people had been looking for the stones for a long time. So maybe they've been around even longer. So we're roughly looking at four to 500 years ago. At least. So that means they've encoded the knowledge of Krypton, Krypton 500 years ago. There's a lot of advancements that could have happened in 500 years. So this is like, you know, it's like getting an Encyclopedia Britannica versus Google. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of information that you've included that could have been updated. And then as we will go on to see, were these stones left for Clark or were they just, is this just something they do? Like, are there three stones of power on every planet in case a Kryptonian needs to get it? Because it seems like Jorel says like these stones were for you, but then there are things that happen that make it seem like they weren't left for any particular Kryptonian, if a Kryptonian at all. So I'm a little bit confused as, were these placed for Clark knowing, did they know that Krypton was going to blow up 500 years later or, or you know, what, whatever the case may be. I'm just a little bit confused. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? No, definitely. And it, it's also interesting. I mean, I like that they place them around the world um, to spread them out and have them be kind of ingrained in different civilizations, like the Mayan water fortress or whatever that the um, transference episode covered. And then the opening scene in the um, fourth season as well with Lex and the pyramid. I, I like that they spread them out, but mm-hmm. it also kind of makes it even more confusing because those are probably different timelines as well. I mean, the, the pyramids in Egypt or wherever they were, were likely built at a different time than the Mayan fortress was. And that also the, this Chinese temple that we'll see is as well. And so where they moved at some point, Uh, Did the Kryptonians that brought the stones to Earth put them inside of those kind of statuettes or whatever? Or did a human put them in there? There's just so many questions with the stones that are not, they're completely unanswered. Yeah. And I, and I would like to know, like, again, as my other podcast is all about role playing games, there's certainly things about this that could make a cool campaign. You know, you have characters searching around trying to find these artifacts of power. If you re, you know, unite them, you can get superpower type of a thing. And I know that both the Mayans and Egyptians, there have been, you know, legends, if you will, that their, their civilizations had these advancements that some people have said were related to aliens. I just like to think people are smarter than that. But I don't know that that necessarily fits China. Again, I know the Mayans and I know the Egyptians specifically had these like pyramidal shapes that align to like certain like 
parts of geography and people are saying that maybe aliens influenced it, but I'm not aware of any off the top of my head legends that, that the Chinese culture was advanced or had these big advancements. Again, I just don't know. But it, so I just wonder if that had might have something to do with it as well. They picked those cultures specifically because of those legends, not necessarily because it fits a, un, a unified timeline of these different civilizations having them. Definitely. So, I don't know. But anyway, uh, we get our quest. Clark has to save the world, which, you know, good on you, because if anyone's going to do it, it'll be Superman. So, yeah. So anything else in the cold open before we move on? I, I definitely wanted to take a nod to the uh, three beams of light when he's talking to Jor-El. Um, mm. I, my headcanon is that those are from the stones. Um, oh. Is the spoiler alert, I guess. But they do kind of lead to a different Jor-El's consciousness in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of like that through line, I guess, of um, bringing together the stones in the future and then also having the altar, I guess, being a link to a Jor-El as well. So that, that's my headcanon that those are those beams of light are from the stones themselves. Right. Very cool. I like that quite a lot. All right. So if you don't mind, if you'll read the summary for the first act there. Jason calls Lana, but inadvertently slips up and makes her suspicious because he says he's in Metropolis, but he's actually in China. And so is Lex. Jonathan is upset at Clark for speaking to Joel, but Clark is beginning to think all the stuff Joel has been doing was for a purpose. Lana visits Lionel and gets some info and a free trip to China, which Clark manages to sign up for. Jason and Lex are arrested. All right. So in our first act, so it, it, just that Lana's at the Talon in her apartment early. It seems like it's pretty early in the morning and Jason calls and he's lies and says he was in Metropolis for a few days, but he's actually in China, quote, you know, question mark. And, you know, so there's all this noise around them. There's like someone speaks in Chinese at one point and it just, it's like Jason is trying to play it off. He's, he's trying to like, what is what he's trying to set up a roadblock for Lana to be suspicious. He wants to not be suspicious. He wants to call her and basically set up, hey, I'm in Metropolis, you know, going to be here for a few days. Don't worry if I don't call you. But the call itself is suspicious in so many ways, the way he's acting. And then at the end, he says, good night. And you can see his, his reaction is like, oh, I screwed up because, you know, it's like 7, 8 a.m. in the morning where he or where she is, but it's at night there. And I did Google it. There's a 13-hour time zone difference between Shanghai, sorry. So that's where they are versus just rural Kansas. So it does actually make sense. I actually think this is a pretty smart plot point. I'm not sure that he couldn't have just sent a text message and said, hey, sorry, I'm going to be in Metropolis for a few days, lots of meetings, call you when I can, might not have been a better option. Yeah, definitely. I did think the the, the dialogue was pretty well written in this phone call in general. I, it just felt very organic from, from the standpoint of both actors um, mm-hmm. or actor and actress. And I also just, Jensen Ackles, like he's, uh, the, the look on his face when he does say the goodnight, he just like kind of cringes a little <laughs> bit. It's just like, his facial acting is just really good. And mm-hmm. also when he's like, he's kind of like rubbing his forehead when he's lying to her and, you know, she's asking him all these questions and he's kind of like going through it and stuff. And it's just, it's, it's really well done in my opinion. Yeah. There, there's little things there again, like he could have sent a text message or he could have not called from the streets of Shanghai <laughs> if he doesn't want people yelling things out in Chinese around him. But at the same time, he's in Metropolis. Like the word Metropolis <laughs> means like a very big city with lots going on. I know Lex does business with other cultures. We've had him talking to Japanese or Chinese businessmen before. He's talked to like people from Sweden and German before. 
So someone yelling out in Chinese is easily like, yep, I got to get back in this meeting with these Chinese nationalists for this Lex meeting. Like that, like it's funny, but it really doesn't, that shouldn't have been such a weird thing if, if he hadn't acted to it. And it's, if, am I making any sense? Like it's not that big of a deal for someone to be speaking a foreign language in the background of a phone call from LexCorp in Metropolis. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, also there could be, I mean, Metropolis is probably gigantic and there's got to be some sort of Chinese kind of community in there. That mm-hmm. would be kind of a sort of a Chinatown there that he could have said as well. That he's getting yeah. lunch or something like that. Right. It just, it, there's a lot easier ways to play it off, but uh, but it, it, it does what it needs to do. It's, it lets us know where he is. It lets Lana be suspicious of what's going on. So it does all the things it has to do. So I think, I mean, obviously they didn't actually travel to China. So we get the Vancouver back lot version of China. I see, no, you actually get to visit there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When I went up to, for the trip to uh, Vancouver, BC, we went to, my wife and I went to the Chinatown there and it was, it was a really cool experience. It's a, it's a cool area. And I think the sets actually work decently well. I mean, I haven't been to China. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to go at some point, but <laughs> I think the sets work decently well as someone who hasn't been to China. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, so then Jason immediately gets a call from Lex, who he also lies to and tries to say that he's not in China. And then, of course, Lex just absolutely says, like, hey, what are you? Why don't you turn around? And then there's Lex behind him looking at him on the phone. So Jason's just not he's 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 batting O for two right now and in, in getting away scot free for all this lying situation. Uh, but I do, again, I like that Lex even lets him lie a little bit before he reveals himself. I, that's all very Lex to me. Definitely. So then we cut to the farm where, where Jonathan's upset that Clark went to speak to Jarrell when they kind of agreed that he wasn't going to do that anymore. And I definitely think, you know, as we talked about before in the show, there's these parallels or mirrors. And I think that there's definitely some of that going on that. Um, you know, Clark went to talk to Jarrell about the stones, but he didn't tell his parents, though he does tell them later. He just he comes clean. And then you have both Lex and Jason kind of lying to each other and to Lana about what they're doing. So if not necessarily parallels and mirrors, there's definitely some similarities and themes and all these people talking about and doing things that they kind of said they wouldn't do. But they, you know, they're still going to do us in their best interest overall. I thought that the kind of talking about the conversation with Clark and his parents, I mean, going he he flip-flops back and forth quite a bit of trying to be normal and saying i'm not and then saying i i I just want to be normal and he's kind of growing out of that a little bit um he does have some like growing pains around this time with that and kind of getting rid of football or taking a step away from it but it definitely goes back and forth quite a bit and i think if if he was any older than a teenager it'd be a lot less believable yes. so it's it's reasonable as a teenager but yeah it's, it's you get whiplash a couple of times for sure you do and again people are inconsistent like you know that's that um you know there's a there's a famous literary saying that i can't actually quote perfectly right now cuz i'm being dumb but but basically fiction has to make sense reality doesn't so when we when you see a person they can act irrational and that's just the way people are. But in like a book, if you read it, you want the character's decisions to all kind of make sense. And I think that's what Clark's doing here. Like, you know, I think the thesis of this entire show, at least the first five seasons, is Clark's journey of trying to decide if he's a person or not. And here he just says, Well, Mom, as much as I like playing football and trying to be normal, the truth is I'm not. We all know that. Okay, okay. so now we're on the I'm not normal train because it, it'll go back and forth multiple times. And then Clark says, you know, 
we don't actually know what will happen if we bring all the stones together. But if I don't find them, someone else will. But is that actually true? Because for at least 500 years, people have been looking for these stones. Why all of a sudden do we think if Clark doesn't find them this week, someone else is? I mean, I think it's reasonable to assume that in the last 500 years, no one has. Now, granted, we, we have seen all the stones now or have some connection to them and the technology has advanced. But Lionel's been looking for the stones for at least 30 or 40 years, probably. The Teagues have been looking for the stones for 30 or 40 years. What makes today different than just being like, if I don't do it today, bad things will happen? Right. And he also has one just safely locked away in the caves. And as far as we know, him and Isabel are the only ones that can get in there. So unless mm-hmm. he's talking specifically about Isabel, I don't think anyone else is going to be able to, to gather them all together. Right. They may get two of them, but if he doesn't tell people how to get there or if Isabel isn't the one, then he, you know, he's kind of got one on lockdown in a way. So, but again, it's the show. It's the plot. If, if Clark didn't make these types of decisions, nothing would ever happen. And that'd be boring. Right. <laughs> So we cut to the mansion and Lionel is cutting fruit. I assume he's making a drink. I, again, I'm not a drinker. I don't know. But I'm also pretty sure Lionel in the past has always drank like straight like bourbon or whiskey or scotch. Like I don't see, is he making a pina colada? I don't quite know what's going on there other than perhaps Lionel something to do with, with Lana when she shows up. Okay. Why would Lana go there? I'm not, was she going there to try to talk to Lex and Lex wasn't there because they're both like, I'm just not sure. This is like the second time in a few weeks, Lana has just shown up at the mansion. Is she now comfortable enough to just do that? I I mean, I know, I guess her and Lex do have a kind of relationship over the the Talon for years, but it just seemed a little odd to me that that's where she would go. Yeah, I think uh, maybe this is just my head, my headcanon giving the rest too much credit, but I, I think she said something about that she was looking for Lex uh, when she first comes in and talking to Lionel and she was looking for Lex because she couldn't get a hold of Jason. But mm-hmm. this whole conversation in general, I mean, there's a lot of exposition and I, I think it's pretty necessary and it's good. But mm-hmm. the fact that it's between Lionel and Lana just seems a little bit out of place. And Lionel's role in general in this is just really interesting to me. Yeah, I one of my favorite things about Lionel, it's like I, I call him the agent of chaos because we're still trying to figure out if he's good or not. Like he's had this big transformation moment because of what happened in transference, but he's still somewhat elusive in his, you know, what's going on, what his true motivations are. But it seems like he's just trying to get things happening. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to give you this map. Hey, you know what? I'm going to tell you this is going on. You know, what? I'm just it, it doesn't seem like he has any sort of motive that he's trying to do like it doesn't feel like he's trying to get the stones he's just trying to like get people to do things like see what happens and it's kind of a fun moment for him he's he's almost joker-ish in a way i don't think there's any parallels with what they're trying to do with him but he's just like he has all this knowledge from all these schemes he's been doing for years and he understands people very well and he's just like kind of messing with them like hey i'll do this you go over here yeah you go over there and just like he's like just seeing what happens and it's actually a lot of fun and i really like that about lionel right now yeah, he is like a chaotic neutral character at the moment. Like he's not doing a whole lot of necessarily evil things, but he's definitely tossing some people in different directions and kind of playing puppet master a bit. Yeah, just to see how it goes. So he he just tells Lana, like, oh, yeah, Jason and Lex are both in China. They're looking after the stones. Oh, by the way, uh, did you know that Jason's ancestors killed your ancestor? And they've been looking for like she's he's just, again, agent of chaos. So he ends up basically giving... Um, her a map the same map she gave jason last week i think and just like 
And we find out later, he sets up a free trip to China for her so that she can go, <laughs> not, not call and say, hey, Jason, we come, but to show up in China. China's a big place. And <laughs> track down Lex. Like, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's actually quite a lot of fun. And I do really like Lana's facial reaction when she learns that Jason is a direct descendant of the person who killed her ancestor, the countess, the witch lady who's been possessing her. Like a lot of times they put a little too much mustard, I think, on the like, let's look at people's faces for a few seconds. But I think Kristen actually does a good job there. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that that whole scene, I mean, it's it's really just a long monologue from Tom Glover and yeah. he delivers it very well. Of but- course. I mean, she is just silent for the majority of it. She has that one clip in there, but other than that, she's just silent. And so it's really just cutting to, to facial reactions for quite a while. And I mean, I think it works decently well in this um, just because it's just like an info dump for her and for the audience as well. Mm-hmm. But it just, yeah, it's it's an interesting scene for sure. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of contrivances in this episode. We're about to get to another one. So we can then go to Clark, who's in his loft and he's like, melancholy about Dr. Swan dying. He has a copy of Time Magazine we've seen before of Dr. Swan on the cover. He's looking at various pictures of of the cave walls and some of the symbols. And I think it's the three specific symbols that match to the three stones of power that we've already seen. And he picks up and he's looking at the symbol for the water slash transference, which then fades into Lana's tattoo of that same symbol. And she's packing, but then Clark's suddenly there. I, why is Clark there? Why did he decide to go to talk to Lana? It's not like they're in a great place right now. She's with Jason. There's been a lot going on, but he shows up just so that he can find out that she's going to China and then volunteer to go with her. Like, is, Very convenient. Is there any other reason you can think of why he would go there other than he needs to go to China with her and there's like shortcut to make that happen? No, I mean, I, I guess the the long leap for me, if my only logic would be that uh, Clark is going there because he's trying to get more information about the stones and he has some inkling that Jason is working on it. And so he had the conversation with Jarrell. He's trying to kind of speed that up now. And so he's going to launch to try to get information. But I don't know how much that tracks, honestly. <laughs> it's probably just the convenience of the plot to, to be over there. Right. It makes as much sense as anything else, I guess, you know. I do like a little bit of their conversation here where Lana's like, you know, she's pissed off because Jason has obviously lied to her. And then Clark says, well, maybe he has a good reason why he's not being open with you. And I just love her. Are you effing serious face right then? (laughs) But that's very true to Clark because he knows that he feels like he has a good reason why he wasn't open with her. And it's still kind of interesting that Clark is trying to give Jason the benefit of the doubt. He's in truth. He's he is his most direct romantic rival for Lana's affection. If Jason gets out of the picture, maybe Clark has a shot again, but he keeps trying to like say, well, you know, maybe, maybe don't give up on Jason type thing. So I just thought that was interesting. But my favorite thing was her. Are you serious face? Yeah, that was a great facial reaction. (laughs) And also, I mean, the, the, this whole or this whole section where she just decides to fly off and, I mean, you could consider it maybe a different day or something like that, but they don't really make that clear that it's a different day. So did she just decide that in you know, a couple hours that she was just going to fly off by herself? She's, she's like 18 or 19 at this time, roughly. She's just going to China randomly for however long. And like, I mean, Shanghai is huge. How are you supposed to find these two people that you know, or are you just going to be alone wandering around Shanghai? Yeah. Again, it, 
it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, if, you know, CW logic, I guess, or small phone logic. <laughs> right. uh, but luckily, Clark is there. Again, truly just lucky that he's there so he can like interpose and say, I'm not going to let you go alone, which I, I get. But at the same time, I kind of wish Lana had been like, screw you. You don't get to go. Like, there's like, it just feels like she just sort of gives up. But I can see why she would want him there. I mean, he's literally saved her life multiple times and he's offering to go with you. I've never flown on a private jet before. I've never flown on a private jet out of the country, but don't you still need a passport? And I, I, Lana just got back from Paris. Maybe she has one, but I have a hard time believing Clark's got a passport that he can just get in the next 12 hours before they fly to Shanghai. Oh yeah, I doubt it. And I, I have to imagine that you have to have a passport. I mean, you still have to go to, through customs, right? I, I, I mean, I, I've never flown on a I don't know. But, either, but. Yeah, I, but I would think so. But again, that, that's not what we're going to bother ourselves here. So then we cut back to to China and Clark, excuse me, Lex and Jason are kind of going back and forth and they're trying to talk and, and Lex is trying to convince Jason, you can't trust Lionel. And Jason's like, I'm just here to find the stones because I'm trying to keep Lana safe, which again, may or may not be true. And as they're talking, we can see these like Chinese, I'm going to call them soldiers. I don't know if they're officials, cops, whatever, but there's, I'm going to call them Chinese soldiers just to make it easy for the rest of the episode kind of gather around them. And, and Lex says, unless you hired your own Chinese security, I think we've hit a snag run. And they both run, but of course they get, well, first of all, they get shot at, which always, you know, great, but then they get trapped in a dead end corner and then get arrested. So Lex and Jason appear to have been arrested by Chinese officials. We don't know why yet or how, what this has to do with anything. I mean, I would assume they don't just randomly arrest Americans. I don't know. I haven't been to China. Seems weird. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, and I don't know how they're going to know that they were trying to search for the stones or something like that. I mean, Lex Luthor, maybe he's like a billionaire. So it's kind of like a Elon Musk situation. You could probably talk to a lot of people in Shanghai and they would know what he looks like and mm-hmm. they would know him on the streets, but still not a good enough reason to to just pick him up, pick him up right away. Right. And we're going to learn later that apparently this was all part of Lex's plan that, that they were working together. So that does make sense there. But before we know that it doesn't make a lot of sense. right i do really like the set here uh the the rain i mean i know it's a pretty cliche kind of thing to have in a lot of these like kind of tense moments and stuff but the beams of light coming from the the jeep that pulls up as well to block them off just shining through it just i don't know it, it looked like a movie quality uh set for a little bit there for mm-hmm. a couple a couple frames so do you think was that fake rain they added in or was it just raining that day and that's what they had to deal with Considering the weather up in the Pacific Northwest in Vancouver, it was probably raining. Just probably just raining that day. Yeah. 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 So we go into our second act here. Clark and Lana chat on multiple levels as they fly to China. Lex and Jason are being held and then then Lex is hauled off for questioning. Lana and Clark find the professor they are seeking who agrees to take them to a temple. Lex returns and Jason is taken for questioning. But then we learn that Lex is actually behind all this. And then we learn that Lex is no longer behind all this. So one of my favorite parts of this episode is the conversation that Clark and Lana have on the jet over, because I do feel like it works on multiple levels. And then there's a, basically there's a thing where Lana says, Clark, I feel like you're the only person in my life that doesn't have an agenda, which not true. Ever since that tattoo appeared, I feel like I've been walking around with this huge secret. Like, everybody only knows what's on the surface, but there's something inside of me that's so much more powerful. And you're afraid if people know about that part of you, they'll see you differently. How could they not? 
So that's clearly how Clark feels all the time. Like he wants to tell Lana the truth, but he's got this power and he's afraid if she finds out, she'll view differently. And certainly based on this conversation, he has reason to believe that. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's the kind of tough part of their relationship in, in general. There's a couple of moments where she you know, says that it'd be okay and stuff like that in like the second and third seasons. But then there's also moments in those same seasons that, you know, she's talking about, oh, it'd be better if Meteor Shower didn't even happen. And mm. there's a lot of kind of back and forth with her character. Obviously, because she doesn't know. Yeah. So she can't kind of, you know, tiptoe around it because she doesn't know what's going on. And so she's kind of, you know, calling out different things that he's worried about, but also calling out different things that, you know, could be a positive. So mm. that's the kind of the drama for them <laughs> throughout all the seasons. <laughs> right. And again, this is totally normal, irrational human behavior that anytime Clark, it's like personal. And she's like, Clark, you can tell me anything. It won't change how I feel. At the same time, when in general, they're talking about, well, if I learn this about someone, I might feel differently. So it does make sense. You can go both ways. But again, in, in fiction, we generally like to have things to make more sense. But what, what I think is so hilarious about this, jumping to the end, is Clark does treat her differently and does feel differently about her because of the power that she has. So he is doing exactly the same thing that he fears she will do to him. So maybe it makes sense. They both feel that way because that's how they actually would react. I just, I find it funny that Clark treats someone exactly the way he doesn't want to be treated. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I mean, you can make an argument too that the countess is evil. And so it's a lot harder to see her as evil rather than kind of him with his powers and he's not, he's, you know, doing good. But yeah, I could definitely see where he's, he needs to be a bit more understanding and understand that he can separate the two people or the, the two people, I guess, and quotes yeah. there. But. So Lana asks what Clark's parents thought about him just, you know, flying to China on a whim. And he's like, ah, I didn't tell them, which makes sense because uh, they would have said no. Uh, you know, Lana, she's sort of an emancipated binder at this point. I don't know if she's technically is 18 or not, but she basically doesn't have to answer anybody. So she can do whatever the hell she wants. But Clark just doesn't tell his parents that he's going to China, which uh, he can tracks for me. Yeah, definitely. He's a really rebellious team this episode. He's doing <laughs> everything on his own. Absolutely. So then we cut back to the the China where Lex and Jason are being held. And and I get a little bit confused about this because there's saying, things that they say that make me think that this is supposed to be the same temple that we will have like later when, when Lana and Clark and the professor show up, that it's the same place, maybe like a different part of it. But then are they that close? Are they connected? Because we see symbols painted on the wall of the Kryptonian symbols, which makes me think it's the same. But then we also I feel like Lex set this whole thing up. And I don't, so I don't know if they actually went to the same one. So it's a little bit confusing to me, but essentially the map that they had been following was taken from them, but then it they take them to the temple. And this is probably my, my biggest frustration with this episode. It doesn't make sense to me. And again, maybe I'm dumb. But what we're going to learn at the end of the episode is that the map isn't actually a map, that it's just a tree. From a D&D standpoint, I actually think that's kind of a clever misdirect. Like you could uh, make that like a plot point of a campaign where people thought it was one thing and it's the other. But it doesn't make any sense to me if everyone knows the temple that we're talking about, because the whole point of the map is the map is supposed to lead you to the specific temple where the stone of power is. But everybody knows the temple. Lionel's been there. The Countess has been there. Lex knows where it is. The professor knows where it is. So then why do we need the map at all if we already know the temple? 
And I do not believe for a second that if Lionel knew where that temple was at, that he would not have raised it to the ground to try to find the stone. Like there's no, I don't believe there's a secret passage no one's found. They would have just knocked the holes in the wall trying to find this. None of that makes sense to me. Did did it work for you at all? Because again, it's fine if it did, but for me, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a collection of different temples around. And so like, it's supposed to be like the crook in the tree is looking back into that one temple that has the kind of Superman or pseudo Superman symbol in it, mm-hmm. uh, the Kryptonian, Kryptonian symbol. So I, I think that it's supposed to highlight that temple specifically. And I think that's the one that they go into later. And then I think that the kind of jail cell, which I, did they convert part of the temple to a jail cell? Because they have like, a full-on like bar barred uh, door there mm-hmm. that has a lock on it i mean kind of random to have that in a, a sacred temple and then the other ones look great right they're like mm-hmm. immaculately immaculately kept so yeah that's that's pretty interesting but i i do have issues definitely with the kind of the tree being there and the the image of the tree i guess from where you're standing i mean it's 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 pretty interesting for sure i i think that it could have been done a little bit better honestly yeah, it's like it feels like first draft stuff for me. And and again, I'm not. I don't. What is an arborist? I'm not a tree person. I don't know the type of species of the tree that is. But that map is at least 600 years old, right? Because I think we learned it was that the the Russian page that that Lex got that has the map is like from the 12th century, the 14th century, one of those, like the 1300s. Right. There's no way that tree will not have grown, right? Again, unless it's a very specific type of tree that just grows to a certain point and then stops. So then the whole perspective is no longer going to work unless it was only like, again, that maybe there's a type of tree that that does work for, but it doesn't make sense to me that the tree would not have grown to the point where that perspective would be off. So I don't completely know. agree. Maybe yeah. there's some some guy that made the map and he's like clipping out the tree to make sure it stays the same size over all the years. <laughs> it's like a bonsai Passive tree. Like he's, generation. Yeah, he's trying to form it the same way. But again, I do like the idea of it. Everyone thinks it's a river, and so they're constantly looking for a river and a temple, and it doesn't make sense. But I don't like the fact that it turns out to be a tree when that doesn't make sense. The perspective doesn't make sense. The years don't make sense, and it doesn't make sense that everyone knows. The, the temple that it is or because the professor takes them to the right temple and says oh yeah this is the temple that has these symbols everyone knows about it so yeah now that now that makes sense to me i do like the line where where jason and lex are talking and lex basically says in the end i have a feeling i may be the one protecting lana from you which pretty much does happen though it's for you know not for altruistic reasons but that is kind of pretty much what happens yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see, or I, I would be interested to see if the writers already knew that they were going to write J- Jensen off this season, because it was that kind of foreshadowing for the last couple episodes, or when did they know, I guess, because there's also kind of some tension, um, some like romantic tension be- between Lana and Clark, and they also have like that heart-to-heart and stuff, and so they're kind of transitioning into that as well, so it, it almost seems like this was one of the earlier episodes that they knew that, that Jensen was going to be on Supernatural. Yeah. So I do know that they learned at some point that he was leaving. So what happens with his character is not what they originally had planned. I don't know when that decision was made. I don't know at what point in the season, if it was like, well, as soon as the season started, they knew and they were working towards it the whole season. I don't think so because it doesn't feel coherent to me. But yeah, I, but I, I would like to know when they're like, okay, we know he's leaving. We have to write him out by the end of this season I'd like to know when that started because it it feels like it's like two weeks ago and they were like, oh, OK. And then because all things start to happen very quickly. But it's also typical of the show at the last, you know, everything starts to escalate at the end of the season. 
but it doesn't feel very coherent to me from beginning to end. So I think there was a matter of some point during the year they found out and made changes. Right. We get a, we're not in Kansas anymore joke, which I mean, again, it's, it's an easy joke. I would have made it too with the uh, Clark and Lana as they're walking along the streets of Shanghai. Uh, Lana almost gets hit by like a, someone on a bike and, and sort of jumps into Clark's arm very much again, that sort of romantic tension a little bit because the, the way they sort of linger and then they awkwardly pull away from each other. Uh, they're looking for a green rooster. Again, this feels very D&D to me. This, someone on the writing staff must have played D&D at some point because you're like, you're in a strange city, you're walking along and you're told to look for a green rooster. And your first assumption is that there will be a true rooster on the ground that's green, but that's just the, the sign of the, the inn or the tavern or whatever. Right. And I think Lionel's clue there was was really vague for saying that they're in Shanghai. I mean, they're they're two again, like 17, 18, 19 year olds walking around the streets of Shanghai looking for a green rooster sign and they just happen to find it. Yeah, you would think he would say it's a business. <laughs> There's a sign of like, yeah, there you definitely could have been a little bit better. And again, they had cell phones. They could have got like an address, a, a, a directions, something. There could have been an easier way to make that happen, I think. But again, Mouth Lionel's just an agent of chaos. Right? He's just trying to Throw people and see what happens. I'm sorry, I spoke over you there. I was saying the map quest was a thing, a thing back then, right? <laughs> I had a Garmin before I had a cell phone, but I don't, I don't remember <laughs> okay. when, when things happened. Yeah. But so they do end up getting to the Green Rooster place. They do meet this professor. And again, it's like she says that this temple, like there's legend that an all-powerful God left a treasure there. So... What again is every planet in the universe have these stones in case the Kryptonian ever needs it? Was this here specifically because someone knew Clark eventually would go there? That doesn't make sense because the story is that he was only sent there because Jor-El tried to save his kid and no one else would listen to him. So it doesn't feel like this is a you know thing for Clark, but we don't know how how long Kryptonians normally live. So was this Jor-El 500 years ago planning this for his kid? I don't understand what we're supposed to think about who put these stones here and, and for who, because as we will learn, when they go to where they think that the stone is, it's guarded by Kryptonian, uh, Kryp- Kryptonite. So why would someone who's Kryptonian put something here that would hurt them thinking that maybe their ancestor would come fine, but that's not actually where the stone is. So maybe it's trying to keep the wrong Kryptonians from finding it because it's hidden, but then so it, it feels to me like what my headcanon is, these cultures were like, holy crap, this all-powerful being could kill us all. So we're going to set up traps in case they come back. And so they put the kryptonite there to harm the Kryptonian. But how would they know it would work? Why would a Kryptonian carry around kryptonite just on them? Unless maybe it's just like dirt particles. And again, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm confused. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And there definitely needed to be some more conductive tissue with this because I think that they could have had a pretty good mythology based around it, but it just changes throughout the season. I mean, I mean, we have probably four or five different characters all putting in their own storyline for these uh, these stones. And that can be fine if, you know, people don't know what's going on with them, but it just never completes. They never kind of wrap it up later on. It's just kind of assumed that they're just, they're just there. Mm-hmm. Very much so. You have any thoughts on the professor, Professor Sen? I believe. Yeah, the professor's acting was <laughs> felt felt like a, kind of like an old action movie, like an old Indiana Jones movie or something like that to me. Like she kept looking over her shoulder and like looking around, all skeptical and kind of like squinting her eyes and stuff like that. And it was definitely pretty campy for me. And also just mm-hmm. the fact that she just like comes out of nowhere when, when they hit the green rooster. 
and she like grabs onto them and she's like don't look here and stuff like that and it's just like it's very very like conspiratorial and stuff mm-hmm. so it's it, it didn't really work for me completely, but that being said, I think it's necessary to kind of move the, move the characters along to where they need to be. Right. And and again, she's like, if don't show this map, people will kill you for this map, but I'm going to take you directly to where this map would lead people if they had the map. So why do we need the map? Anyway, so we go back to Lex and Jason and uh, Lex comes back and he looks like he's been roughed up. He's got cuts, he's bleeding. And he, he says, just as they're pulling Jason away, just tell them what you know. There's no reason to get, you know, hurt over this, die over this. Which once you find out seconds later that Lex is behind it, of course that's what this is all set up. This is all a play to try to get Jason to tell what he actually knows. And I actually like that. I think this is definitely a Lex thing he would do. He would set all this up just to try to get Jason to confess what he knows. But then immediately we find out that there's been another level because the Byron character, uh, Commander Chang, maybe says there are people who have more money than you, which is why Lex assumes that this is Lionel, though that actually doesn't make sense because Lionel doesn't have any money anymore. So I assume that this was Genevieve is the one who's behind all it all. And that's why Jason isn't doesn't fall for it because he already knew this was coming. And this is uh, one of those kind of like situations where I'm kind of fine with there not being as much connective tissue and uh, being left a mystery because we still, we never find out. I don't think that it's Genevieve or Lionel. Yeah. As far um, as I know, I don't remember them ever saying specifically. Yeah, exactly. And so my headcanon is, is agreed that it's Genevieve. I think that makes a lot more sense. Um, especially, I mean, Lionel doesn't exactly have the most money right now because he's, <laughs> he was robbed of all of it when he went to jail. So right. Uh, I, I definitely think it makes more sense for it to be Genevieve. And they, they even talk about it before when he actually gets out of jail. They say like, well, you know, she's super powerful and she right. has all these connections and all this money. And so it kind of tracks with that. Um, but I, I kind of like that they don't actually explicitly say it because I think you can kind of assume that it's Gen- Genevieve. Although we'll later see that it kind of turns on her because then Jason kind of gets wrapped up really deeply into it. And is is being tortured so that mm-hmm. kind of backfires on everyone and it kind of seems like the the chinese um, officials are just kind of in it for their own skin in the game yeah again it seems like this is something they've been after for a long time so it's possible that they just didn't want to comply with lex's you know it was, it was a double cross but and the whole people have more money than you was just to deflect and confuse people but in my head it was, it was genevieve yeah i did think that it was interesting too that Lex, you know, even if he did pay them off, you know, he he got beaten up himself. And then when he says like, "Don't don't hurt Jason though," like it, just scare him, don't hurt him though. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, so he's he's willing to commit fully himself to the bit. But then when it comes to Jason getting hurt, he's he wants him to hold back. Right. So again, it's one of these things we get where I mean, obviously this is if not evil, it's Machiavellian in a way. This all this whole setup of like you know get Jason there get them both arrested, set this up like it's a torture scene, allow himself to be tortured or roughed up enough to make it believable. Doesn't want Jason to actually get killed, but he's like, don't, don't hurt him. Just, you know, scare him a little bit. So he doesn't want to go all the way. So I don't know. It's just this weird insight into Lex's character that he's willing to do all of this, but he doesn't truly want to hurt Jason. Like, I mean, I'm sure in his mind, hurt means like loose fingers or teeth. Like I'm sure he expects them to get punched a little bit, but like, they don't want him like, you know, cutting out his entrails to get him to to talk. So it's like, uh, is he a good guy? No, not really. Is he evil? Not yet. But uh, ew, this isn't a good look. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, did, I do like that as, as part of Smallville, though, is like you never know exactly where he's, he's living. He's not, you know, just like a complete villain early on. You know, he kind of goes back and forth and you can see like glimmers of, of hope and then it kind of just like twists around and stuff like that. It's, it's mm. pretty interesting. All right. If you don't mind, will you read the third act summary for me, please? At the temple, Clark finds a hidden chamber and sends Lana and the professor off so he can open, open it secretly. Inside, he finds artifacts and kryptonite putting him down. Lana and the professor are accosted by the Chinese soldiers who have Jason and Lex, and Lana is captured and tortured herself, which causes the Countess to emerge. Clark manages to get away, but is knocked out by the Countess, who then leaves to retrieve the stone. So we get to the actual temple, and this is like the the customer-facing side, like the you know the touristy sections. It, lock, it looks oh, right. very much like a you know a Chinese temple compared to like the industrial side where Lex and Jason are being tortured. Um, and we get a little bit more of the backstory about the all-powerful God and everything. Uh, they start to look around and Clark uses his x-ray vision and sees that there's a chamber behind one of the walls. And so he uh, kind of makes up a, uh, why don't you guys look around? I'll keep a look around. I mean, it's so obvious what's going on. Because Lana even says, did you did you see something? Did you find something? Just I, I think it's so obvious that, that Clark is just trying to get rid of them. And I feel like in my head, Canon Lana knows. She just assumes if she leaves, that things will happen. So she's just going with it. But again, I do not believe for a second that no one else has ever found this chamber. Maybe they can't open it. Maybe it required like super strength to do that. But I don't think for a second that Lionel wouldn't have found a way to like take a sledgehammer to that wall if he thought for a second something was behind it. Oh, definitely. And I mean, it, it really just looks like a doorway too. I mean, it's, it, it's not, it's very, very clear that it's not even just a wall, right? It's, it, it, there's like a recessed area of it. That's like a disc of sorts that, that Clark kind of rolls away, which mm-hmm. also was interesting. <laughs> I don't know how that was set up before, but uh, it, it looks really interesting. Um, and you, you can definitely see that there's something back there. So I, I can definitely see where Lionel would, would notice that, or at least someone I mean, I'm also going back to the the location of the stone, you know, in the dirt near the tree, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, he would have like an archaeology site set up or something like that here if he was actually trying to find the stone, right? If he was actually scouring, like they've been saying multiple times this episode, he would have like teams and teams of people like he had in the caves. So it's it's really hard to believe that he doesn't find any of this stuff. Yeah, it, it, again, it, because the because the map turns out not to be important. If you were there, I, again, I think Lionel with his you know billions of dollars, and and we find out like in season seven, there's like an entire society, the Veritas, that were looking for this, involved all these billionaire families, the Queens and Doctor Swan. I just can't believe that they would not have turned every inch of that over looking for something, but they didn't. So that's what we got to deal with. Uh, but then here's the thing where, where Clark goes in because all that's inside there, it isn't the stone itself. It's either like cloth or armor, like ceremonial garb, which has a recreation of that same map, like embroidered or whatever the correct clothing term would be on there. But there's also like a dragon mask. And when Clark gets in, it activates the kryptonite, which is inside and then causes Clark to fall to the ground. And, you know, he's in, he's in pain. So who put the kryptonite there? Why did they put the kryptonite there? Where did the kryptonite come from? Because this was long before Clark arrived. So I feel like the Kryptonians would have had to have brought it with them. And yeah, it, it makes sense that maybe there would have been elements of their home planet there. But once they realized, oh, God, this hurts us here, maybe we should leave it. Or I, I don't I just I don't understand where the kryptonite was supposed to have come from. Yeah, definitely. And I also thought it was interesting that the the eyes of the mask are they start off as like queer almost. And then it like shines bright and the, the green light comes out and it, it shows that it's kryptonite. So I'm, I'm wondering if there was like a little swap or something like that inside of the mask as like the door was open, like a little booby mm. trap. But 
I yeah, the, there's it makes a lot of the kind of Kryptonian backstory for this storyline for the stones is just really nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the stone storyline is great, but there's some de- definitely some um, issues with it for sure. Yeah, I, again, I just I don't have a problem with it. There's just a few little places I would because it because it feels to me like this these are questions that we should be asking. I want there to be an explanation. Like it could be like there was, you know, this Veritas society, maybe it's been around for 700 years, you know, it's been around since the beginning or however long. And they know a little bit more than the common people in every culture that, you know, they, they, they are active in. And they knew at some point in time, these powerful beings were to kind of come back and they have figured out that, Hey, this one element hurts them. But so, cause because it's there, I, I want there to be a reasonable explanation. I feel like they just never address it again. It, it's just there because they want Clark to be captured, just so they can get dragged to the place, so that he can get, be like it's. It's just, you know, it, they need him to do a thing, so this is there, so that that happens. It makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately for the professor, the Chinese officials come in. They capture. Well, they. They kill the professor, the shooter. I assume she's dead. We don't ever see her again. And they're about to shoot Lana when they see her tattoo. And then they're like, maybe she's important. So they don't shoot her and they take her off to be tortured as well. Yeah, I thought the smoking gun after the after shooting the professor was interesting when they're, they're aiming the gun at Lana. There's a little bit of smoke coming out of it. It was a little bit ominous. <laughs> yeah, very much so. So Lana gets a drug in. So we basically find out that Lex and Jason are both being tortured now. And I've seen this in other media. It's like the a battery cable. One side's got like a wet sponge and the other's grounded and you you shock them. I'm sure it hurts like the Dickens. It's like, you know, painful. I call it the fun machine. So they're <laughs> doing this to Lex and Jason and neither one of them telling because they don't know anything. And again, I kind of think Jason does, but he's not saying anything here. But then they bring Lana in and they're going to do the same torture to her. And both Jason and Lex are like, don't do it. But neither of them tell anything. So maybe they don't actually know anything. I don't know. But when they start to torture Lana, this causes the countess to emerge to protect herself. And when that happens, things go bad for everyone around her. Yeah, I, I really, really dislike torture scenes in media in general. It's just something that makes me really squeamish. And so I usually try to avoid it. And this was pretty, pretty graphic, in my opinion, for, such, yeah. for CW at least, or WB at the time, I guess. But yeah, I, I had definitely had a tough time with it when I first watched it when I was a bit younger. And I, I mean, it's it's definitely a pretty, pretty gnarly scene. I mean, it works well, but mm-hmm. it's, it's surprising, honestly, uh, coming out of Smallville. Yeah, I agree. I, again, I think they had to try to justify that the Countess was able to emerge because, you know, it seemed like the way that she was possessed before was a very specific cer- set of circumstances. But this is to let us know, no, the Countess is still inside there and can come forward to protect the host body for, you know, using those terrible terms. So I think it needed to be enough graphic to justify that. Otherwise it would be like, why doesn't she come out every time Lana's stuck in traffic or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I also noticed too, that, I mean, they were turning up the dial real quick when they, when they used on Lana, I mean, Lex and, and Jason, they were, you know, they were getting there, but Lana, they just kept going. And so I was like, <laughs> okay, all right, nice. Yeah. Like that's- Really Get crazy. results however you can, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but so the torture does cause the Countess to, to emerge and we get some more Latin spell casting. It starts with liberare, uh, which translates to free. And that's when her bonds break off of her. She then shoots some purple energy of light and knocks out slash kills uh, some of those guards. And then she taunts Jason and Lex. 
Now, it seemed apparent the first time the Countess emerged that the only way she could cast spells was to have her spell book with her. Now we don't need that. She could just, as long as she can speak Latin, she can cast spells, so whatever. But then we get their classic taunting where she unfolds the map and explains, Too bad that neither of you could see what was right in front of you all along. It was never a map. But even though it still kind of was, it wasn't the map people thought it was because it was the tree, not a river, but you that still tells you where the treasure is buried. So my mind still counts as a map. Agreed. And it's, it's, it's pretty funny that she just tells them exactly what she's going to do and tells them exactly where it is. Well, <laughs> she, she doesn't exactly. Up. She says it's not a map, but then she leaves. Like she doesn't actually say oh, okay. it's just a tree because that's what I was expecting her to be. It's like, it's a tree. She goes, it was never a map. And then she, then she gets leaves. And it's not till we see her actually using it uh, that we actually learn specifically what it is. So she's just being a jerk to him, which is kind of funny, I think. So we cut back to Clark. Clark is still under the effects of the kryptonite. So he's just laying there uh, moaning. The two soldiers start to drag him away. And once they drag him far enough away, he gets his strength back. And he does the whole double arm fly off. I assume both of these officials go unconscious because they don't get back up and start shooting them. So I count in both of them as being unconscious. Clark then walks behind the countess and lex tries to go out to him but it's too late because he gets hit with purple energy and gets knocked unconscious so then clark is now unconscious so we're at three already it's going to get higher from there definitely so i feel like i'm going i'm talking too much and going too fast so feel free to jump in yell at me if there's anything else you want to talk about let me know good all right so in our fourth act clark awakens and frees both lex and jason clark shows them the chamber but then jason realizes that the map isn't a map it's a tree Cut to Lana and the Countess at the base of that tree, freeing the stone from the earth. Clark zips over and takes it back, but then is blasted by her and loses it again. Clark and Lana slash Countess have a badly choreographed super character fight. And then it ends with Lana awake and the stone missing. All right. So I'll let you start off here. Fourth act, what do you want to talk about? There's so much in this one. Uh, it's, it's a pretty packed act. And uh, I, I did like the the filming area of uh, the temple in general, and also where that where that tree is. Um, mm. It was another area in Vancouver, of course. They they just really hit those spots pretty hard. But it's in the Chinese garden um, called Doctor Sun uh, Yat Sen, and it was a it was a beautiful garden. And I definitely recommend anyone um, that loves the show or just anyone in general to go out there. It's it's, it's really nice, and it's in the middle of the city as well. Um, so I think they kind of, you know, green screen the the hills, the Chinese hills over the temples and stuff like that. But it's it's really nice. Um, and I, I also I think that there was some kind of interesting special effects at the time. I actually loved the special effects of the of the the kind of force figurine coming out of the ground, and it just mm-hmm. looked really cool. But now, kind of looking looking back at it, you know, the, the glowing kind of orange coming out of the ground, it almost looks like it's like lava or something like yeah. that. That's like <laughs> seeping up out of the ground and. It's it's kind of funny and campy now, as a lot of the, the special effects are. But I mean, it's been also, what seventeen years since this came out. So yeah, yeah. I I actually much prefer practical effects in general. So I, I yeah. did really appreciate that at least. Oh, it definitely looks better than if they had tried to CGI. That's for sure. I, I agree with you there. So Lana got a new outfit. I'm not I'm not sure where that happened, but she looks nice. But definitely like a period Chinese gown sort of thing. Looks nice. Don't know where she got it. We get some more of the Latin spell casting. She says spectaculum lapis, which translates to show the rock. So that's what causes the rock to, to come up. I think it's kind of, again, this is, this is where I, I feel like they, there's information there, but we just don't get all of it. 
all three of the cultures that had these stones encased them in a figurine of some sort. And apparently once it's out of that figurine, Clark can hear the vibrations or, or whatever calls to him. So until the Countess slash Lana breaks it open, then that's what alerts Clark. So I just feel like that's kind of an interesting thing that it, they, they, they learned that if they didn't conceal it, that it would lead the person or the Kryptonian back to them. So again, I feel like there's, there's stuff that was the, in the writer's room. They came up with this big background story, but then they just didn't share all of it with us, which again, it's been 700 years. So maybe that makes sense. But for the show, I want it to make more sense. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I would actually even take that reading. I hadn't thought about that before, but that, that almost to me would mean that it was a Kryptonian that was encasing it because they, they would know that whatever materials you would need to kind of like block that radiation that's causing the noise to come into their, their mm-hmm. ears or whatever. I think it'd be hard for the humans to kind of put the two and two together if they found out. I mean, I guess if they were not encased, then they would confine them immediately with the super speed. But right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I could see the uh, the Kryptonians having made the the statues or the uh, the kind of figurines for the encasing. Mm. It would also kind of mean too that they like whoever whatever Kryptonian dropped those off wanted to be able to find the, themselves because they didn't want other Kryptonians to be kind of hearing the noise and, right. and knowing where it is. So it, it kind of lends it to there's someone that was thinking that they were going to come back for it later. Yeah. So again, I, it's just. I, I want to know the secret history of the stones and like who was behind it and why, what, like what the original plan was. Yeah. We're putting uh, together the story with very small puzzle pieces. <laughs> yes. I do really like Lana's face again, as the countess, when the, when the horse statue emerges, because she has this sort of like confused, bemused look on her face. Like that's not a rock. I don't know what this is. And, you know, it very quickly passes. She breaks it open and finds the stone, but, but there is a moment where she's like, what the, is this, you know, and I, I don't, I, I like Lana's face there. I think it's really funny. So she cracks it open and then the, the sounds are Clark can hear it. And the countess is admiring her find when Clark super speeds and gets it from her. And this is great. This is good use of superpowers. What I don't understand is why he decided to stop five feet away from her and then stand there like a moron, giving her enough time to shoot him with purple energy and knock him out. Yeah, that's, uh, this is my biggest frustration with speedsters in general if you've seen the flash this is so common just never stop Mm -hmm. i mean it's you just don't need to you could be like hundreds of miles away in the blink of an eye and he could he could just be gone with it i mean realistically the flash could even like run across the water or something like that go back to north america but it's just uh, yeah i completely agree and i could see now that this is the irresponsible use (laughs) use of powers where he, he just decides to just stop right there and also, like, I mean, he could be dodging these bolts of, of, of purple energy as well. He just doesn't do anything. Yeah, he can move so fast that she can't even see him take the stone from her hand. But he can't, like, you know, Matrix-style dodge out of the way of these purple, purple energy blasts. <laughs> so he gets hit, and he goes out unconscious again. So that's two times Clark's been unconscious this episode. Will not be the last. So she takes the stone again. And this is, like, maybe that cheeky but a uh, you know reference to the mythos because she holds the stone in like a red cloth napkin and we have that sort of superman symbol it's like it's actually an eight but it kind of looks like an s and the way the the red is flapping it kind of looks like a cape flapping in the wind so it looks like the superman symbol and a red cape but the colors are wrong it's a it's a stone it's not a person so i feel like they kind of want us to think about that but it's also not 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 really a good reference i don't think so i don't i don't know for sure 
Yeah, I definitely got that on my first watch through, though, for sure. I, the, the first watch that I had on this season, is, this is actually my first season of Smallville as well. I, this is my first DVD box set that I got uh, way back when. And I, I had that on my first watch through. I was like, the, that looks like a cape. It just, it, the way that's flowing just looks very cape-like. Mm-hmm. So she then goes back into the temple. And then Clark, apparently woken up, comes back and faces her again. Super speeds in front of her again. So she like uses magic to like draw weapons. She gets a sword and a sigh. And then she says, penetrare imus corpus, which translates to pierce the body. And then the weapons start to glow with the purple light. She throws the sigh. Clark dodges it. Just kidding. He stands there and it stabs through his body and into the wall behind him. So we basically we learned these weapons can hurt Clark now. Yeah, he when when he's pulling that blade out of his chest, that there's like the blood like dribbling down on his jacket and stuff, and it, it's I mean he could just move a fraction like a foot to the left or to the right. I mean even a, a regular human could have probably dodged that honestly because it's coming from pretty far away. So that's that's pretty egregious. <laughs> and you can always say like maybe he just assumes it wouldn't hurt him because you know he he I'm sure he thinks of him before, but he could have caught it. Uh, it still, it's just it's just this weird kind of thing. I think the fight is really badly choreographed. I just, I don't think it's really well. I think it's very cheesy. I do wonder if this is how Kristen got the uh, Legend of Chung Lee Street Fighter movie <laughs> she does, I think like four or five years later. Cause there's definitely some like wire food, you know, Chinese acrobatics and part of the fight. It's just very clearly a CW, early CW version. I just, I just don't like the fight at all. It just does not work for me at all. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And as a, as a kind of middle schooler, when I was first watching this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, I was like so excited for the fight. But yeah, it, it was pretty, it was very kung fu. And that look over her shoulder, too, for that split, like, split moment was just like, it, it looks so much like a kung fu movie to me. Yeah. So she starts doing this like spinny thing where she's like floating in the air and spinny. I don't, I don't know what this is supposed to do. But then Clark once again realizes, hey, I can move as fast as I want to. And he runs up and like rips the stone out of her pocket. And then they both go to reach for it. And then somehow this causes like a backlash and they just sort of like, and then they um, like get blown apart from each other. And I think I remember from the first time the stones were in play and she was around that if she touches it with her hand, it like knocks her back. So I kind of think that's what we're supposed to get here is that she can't touch it directly. She has to have some sort of barrier that this cloth napkin or whatever is providing. And I think in that that scene, she doesn't have it. So she just goes to grab it or something like that because it causes them both to, to fly away. It doesn't appear to me that either of them go unconscious, but we learn later that they both were unconscious because that's how Jason was able to get the stone without anyone knowing. So they apparently did both go unconscious. So this is the third time for Clark and another time for Alana. And also Jason is just there. So did he see any of this with Clark? Like we, it just seems like maybe he was there the whole time. Yeah, I, that's, that's a really good question. It's very unclear, especially later on when we find that he's the first person on the scene that's actually conscious. When did he come in? How did he get there? There's, yeah. there's a lot of questions. Also, how did, how did it take them so long to get there as well? I mean, they were in a temple relatively nearby, Lex and, and uh, Jason. Yeah, they just didn't show up until it was time for them. The script said we'd get here now, I guess. <laughs> but he got there before Lex. And they said there's there's a hole in Clark's shoulder and jacket and shirt. And I'm, I'm assuming as soon as they, you know, the weapon comes out, he probably speed heals. But they had to fly back on a private jet all the way. Like that's like 12, 13 hours. I 
feel like there would have been a conversation had. I don't, maybe not. Again, I don't know because we don't ever find out, but I assumed that Jason, Lex, Clark, and Lana all flew back together after all this was over. But maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, he, he's not conspicuous about trying to cover it up either. He very clearly <laughs> pulls it over himself and then there's still a hole there. Like he's yeah. not covering anything because there's still a hole in the top jacket. So it's just it, that, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I don't know how anyone that's concerned for his well-being after he's just unconscious would not notice that. Yeah, I mean, he just went toe-to-toe with a witch that knocked people out. And you know, there's so there's so many questions that just ever are not asked here. But the important thing is we learned that the stone is gone. Now, we know Jason has it. We find out later Jason has it. But for the moment, it appears like it's just gone. And, and no one knows. Lana doesn't know. Clark doesn't know. It's just gone. And there is no explanation. So I do like that later we learn it was Jason because otherwise it would just be like nonsensical. But I think Jason having it raises other questions that are never quite addressed. Definitely. And that, that plane ride that you mentioned, the, the private jet ride back, if they all took that same one, that's going to be an awkward flight because the, Jason and Lana are in a really interesting position right now. And they, they have that scene at the end. So that's that's kind of a, a little bit of a plot hole of how they get back. because It seems like they haven't talked since they since everything happened. Yeah. So again, maybe he already paid for his commercial flight and couldn't get a <laughs> refund. So he decides to do that rather than take the personal private jet back. Yeah. Or maybe maybe Lex doesn't let him because he's like, screw you, you don't work for me anymore. I don't. I don't <laughs> That's a good point. So we'll jump into the fifth act. If you don't mind, will you read the summary, please? Clark and Lana chat about how weird things are right now. Lana just wants all this Stone's business over with. Lex and Lionel discuss wisdom and knowledge and Clark ponders his destiny. So we get, I think it's kind of a weird scene where Lana comes to the loft and talks to Clark. And he's working on his college ap- applications. I do like the line about he's trying to figure out if hidden temples and body snatching falls under community service or extracurriculars. <laughs> funny. Give you the funny line there. We find out that Clark's been avoiding his parents. He hasn't really even talked to them since he got back, which is kind of weird. But this is where we talk about Clark does treat her differently now that he's seen that power again. Which, you know, isn't, he doesn't want to be treated that way. And maybe it's different because her power is another consciousness and it's not just her. But I just find it really weird that he is treating her the way he doesn't want to be treated in the same situation. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that, that line that Clark says, too, about even when Isabel is gone kind of nullifies my earlier argument of, you know, it being different because she's evil and you know, Clark's you know, not evil. He's, mm-hmm. he's doing good. But. He even says when she's gone that he doesn't recognize her anymore. And yeah. I mean, it's it's honestly kind of a good thing. These are characters growing. Uh, so she's doing it. She's done a lot of different stuff and she's kind of maturing quite a bit. There's a lot of big difference between season three, Lana, and season four, Lana. Mm-hmm. She says she just wants to be free. She just wants to be free of Isabel. She wants to get rid of all the stuff. Or, or she says she wants to find the stones just to get rid of Isabel, which, again, I just think is important to note for some way her character acts later doesn't quite work out. Maybe there's just more information I don't have. But Clark says, I think our lives are a lot less random than we think. And again, I think this is him thinking that the trials that Jorel has set for him and, and things that are happening, there is a purpose and there is a plan. He's starting to kind of maybe come around a little bit on, on this. But then Jorel should tell him this. Like Jorel should say, hey, there's a purpose to all this. All these trials I'm sending you on are building towards something because the way Jarrell has been acting is really terrible. And I don't think Clark should be coming around to thinking he's actually not that bad of a guy. He is. He's terrible. He's done a lot of really bad things. And it just seems like he could have very easily said, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And would have solved a lot of problems. So I don't really like Clark turning positive towards Jarrell so much right now. Agreed. 
Uh, we cut to the mansion where Lex is getting logging onto his computer. And we, oh, well, first of all, Lana leaves. So again, long way, short conversation. We see that Lex's password is elements. Now that's not how passwords work. But do you think there's a reason why they they meant to show us? Like they specifically said, "Hey, we want you to see Lex's password and where is elements." I mean, is that a reference to the stones? Because there's different like there's air, water, and earth. Is the or not air? Water, fire, and earth. I think. Um, so do you think, oh no, it, it is air, fire, and water. Sorry, there's not earth. So do you think there's a reason why they wanted us to show that or not? They do call the stones elements at times. So mm. it, it is, there is that, that through line, but it's, it's such an obvious password though. I was, uh, as I was watching this episode last night, I, I was like, just like cringing at that, uh, that password because like, that's his most, his biggest obsession right now. The first thing that someone's going to put in there, if they know him at all, is elements. That's the first password that they're going to use. That or stones or something like that. Right. Because it's it's just it's so obvious. And it, it was just really funny to me that they showed that specifically. And at least use problems. a three for the E's and a dollar sign <laughs> for the S, you know, mix it up. Maybe they showed us that to justify how Lionel got the, got the map is that he was able to get onto Lex's computer so easily while Ch- Lex is off around Galvan around the world. Lon's like, elements yep there i'm in <laughs> I like that. uh so this is what we did for our cold opens we had a pretty i think a big juicy scene between lex and lionel here about and again i'm still trying to figure out what lionel's point is he seems to be an agent of chaos he's just trying to get things happening so he sent both jason and lana off to get the stones to interfere with lex trying to get the stones and he seems to be saying just give up like i'm not after the stones anymore because i'm worried that if we find them it'll make things worse and we get the whole thing at the end, you know, where Lionel says the difference between wisdom and knowledge. We already did all the dialogue, so it's kind of been covered. But is there anything else about that scene you want to talk about? I, I just love that scene. It's it's really good. I I think that the a lot of the conversations between Lex and Lionel are always kind of a treat in, in each episode, um, especially when they bring in kind of mythos and the kind of history, I guess, and stuff like that, and kind of bringing that into current day what what they're going through, current day mm-hmm. issues. And so I really like that that scene. Um, and I also just like Lionel's lines in those scenes. So that it's just a really interesting kind of perspective to have the, you know, you, you find the truth and then, but you don't actually understand it. That's not really very meaningful. And so right. that that little, little nugget was pretty good. I mean, it's like almost the, the treasure we seek is the friends we make along the way. You know, the, the journey <laughs> yeah. is the point, not the destination type of a thing. But yeah, but I still, I continue to love Lionel. I think again, John Glover, just, he's an amazing actor. So he could be saying the dumbest things in the world, but we're going to love it because it's John Glover. Yeah. The, the only one thing that I had uh, an issue with is him saying that he doesn't care about the stones anymore. Like he doesn't care about finding them. And I mean, like we mentioned before, he's, he's been the puppet master for, for a little bit here and he's been sending people out to do things. And so maybe he's, you know, claiming that he wanted to enlighten Lana so that she can choose her for herself, what she wants to do and that kind of thing. But I mean, he's clearly has a vested interest in this and he's feigning that he, he doesn't at the moment. Mm-hmm. So we get a scene with Jason and Lana. Obviously their, their relationship is strained and Jason is trying to apologize. And that's when he reveals that he has the stone of power. He found it. He got there before Lana or Clark awoke and before Lex was there and he pocketed it. We get a line that he mailed it to himself, which is great because I would be like, how the hell did he fly back on a jet with Lex and not Realize he has the stone in his pocket for 12 hours. And plus he would have been making that buzzing sound and Clark would have heard it the whole time, which I don't know why he's not hearing it now, but whatever. Um, so he, he melted himself from China. He hasn't told his mother about it. And then Lana is, is just standing there stunned 
And he finally says, blink twice if you can understand me. And she actually blinks twice and they both kind of laugh. And I thought that was cute. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, you can definitely make an argument on, you know, should she be coming back to him when he's done all this stuff and that kind of thing. But when she's, I mean, she's in such an unstable place right now and everything's going on around her. And so I think that, you know, him showing her not by his actions, not just by his words that, you know, he is actually in this for her and they're going to do it together helps a lot. But I mean, They've been through so much already that I don't know if it's reasonable for her to come back. And again, this is where I just get confused about his character. Because I actually, again, this is great. Like if he's trying to convince Lana that he truly is only doing this for her, then telling her he has the stone and not telling Lex or his mother, that is the probably the best, you know, offer he could make of like solidarity. We're in this together. It's just you and me. I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about the stones. I just want to protect you. Perfect. But then in the very next episode... He's not acting like that anymore. It's weird. So I just, again, I just don't quite, I I still feel like this is a play. He is just trying to manipulate her. And the only way he can stay with her is this gesture. So I feel like maybe mom does know about it or, you know, he plans to tell mom eventually. And this is all just a setup because again, spoilers next episode, the stone goes missing and Jason is very aggressive about trying to find who, who took it. So we get back to the farm finally. Clark is trying to explain what happened, um, but he didn't actually get the stone. Martha asked the same question I had, like, are we sure these stones are meant for Clark? Doesn't make sense that they would be. So I don't think they are, because then why would they be, be surrounded by you know things that can harm them? So again, this is the writer saying, we understand this doesn't quite make sense, but then they never go circle back around and explain how it does make sense. Uh, we do learn finally about the email that Clark got from Dr. Swan. Apparently... Bridget Crosby was supposed to give Clark the other stone that they have, the one from transference, but now he can't find Bridget Crosby and can't even find any evidence of her as if she's been wiped from the face of the earth. Uh, now I mentioned before that this was played by Margot Kidder and after Christopher Reeve died, she kind of had a problem with how the show was going to represent his character. And so she got mad and she refused to participate anymore. So I think originally they actually wanted her to come back as a Bridget Crosby and be part of the show. But she refused. So I think this aspect of the storyline was them dealing with the fact that they couldn't use her character anymore. And I think in another episode later in the season, they find her body, but all you see is like a leg. But that's supposed to be her character. So they had to write her off because she wouldn't participate. And then we cut back to the caves one more time. Clark's there staring at the, the altar and everything again. And he's sort of reflecting on the words of Dr. Swan that you must write your own destiny. So any thoughts on any of that? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good wrap up for the episode. It definitely took a bit longer to wrap up the episode because I feel like so much happened um, in the, the first few acts. So there was a lot of kind of getting back to the status quo, but I, I think it was done done well. And I think uh, Clark kind of coming back to Martha and Jonathan, and Jonathan giving the line of, oh, did you bring us a souvenir back from China? It's <laughs> like, well, kind of like dig at him just flying off to China randomly. It was, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. I Again, I, I love the show. Okay, keep in mind. Keep in mind, all my all the pits uh, or picks or nitpicks. But the very next episode, like, has almost nothing to do with the stones. It has nothing to do with the stones as far as Clark is concerned. So it's just like this is such a big deal, and then it's completely forgotten for an episode. And it's just that's the part. It seems seems again. I think this may be just be a, a result of the fact that this is a twenty two twenty three episode season. There's a lot of stuff they have to tell, so some stories can't you know, or it only be eight episodes. But that's one thing that bothers me is that this is such a big deal and such a big turning point in so many 
decisions and relationships. And then we kind of ignore it until we need to not ignore it again. But anyway, so final thoughts on the episode, or if you want to circle back to anything, because I, I do feel like I went through some of those parts pretty quick. Is there something we skipped over you want to touch back on or just big picture thoughts? What do you want to talk about? I, I just really, this is actually one of my favorite episodes and that's why I chose it. Okay, cool. Um, it's definitely up there for me. I just, the the gravity of the episode is, is pretty large for, especially for season four. There's a lot of fun episodes in season four and this one kind of has a lot more gravity than some of the earlier episodes in the season and it packs a lot into it. And it's also just a good mid-season kind of progressing the plot along quite a bit. Um, as you mentioned, there's some seasons that kind of just completely ignore the, the main plot points. Mm. And so it's it's good to kind of further that along and it's also nice to have the superman kind of mythos stuff in there with uh, jor-el and I, I just really like it but it also feels like it's like almost like a fully contained movie to me or a fully contained story where we're out of kansas for the first time um in the show and out of nowhere in metropolis nowhere in smallville all the characters are experiencing something like completely new for the like mm-hmm. for the first time and kind of getting out of their comfort zone where we're like very set in for a long time, especially coming from a small town um, of Smallville. And so there's a, a similar feeling in an episode of Supernatural uh, that I noted that's um, where Sam and Dean are involved in a bank heist. And it feels very similar where it's like it has a lot of like gravity and implications and stuff, but it's kind of wrapped up by the end of the episode. But it, it, the sets are really nice. Like it's a very different formula from the rest of Smallville mm-hmm. or the rest of Supernatural. But obviously there are the plot holes that, that kind of plague the season a bit and stuff. But overall, I think it's a, a really good episode. Okay, well, I'm really glad you like it. It's not my favorite of season four, of course, but it's not not terrible. There are elements. My my biggest frustration isn't this episode. It's the questions this episode poses that we never get an answer to. Like, I feel like they, they wanted to do something really big and they either just didn't or couldn't or didn't need to. Like, you know, we set up these questions, but we don't have to answer them. We're just not going to. So that's the things like I wanted it to make more sense in the end. But it was kind of nice again to get out of Smallville. Like the other two stones basically came to us, sort of. Uh, you know, this one they had to go get. It does make the world bigger because, you know, Superman is a world hero. He's not just a Kansas hero. And that was kind of nice. And, you know, we got to see some pretty cool stuff. We could see Clark hurt. You know, again, magic is one of the few things that can hurt Clark. So it's always kind of fun. And, and I do like conversation, conversation between Lex and Lionel was great. The conversation between Lex and Clark added a lot of depth to their relationship and set up again possible resolutions and future conflicts. So I think all that was great. Uh, so man versus Superman, you know, you've been here before, you know how it works. I think these episodes in part are trying to figure out Clark's journey between wanting to be the all American boy and his heritage of a Kryptonian and destiny to become Superman. So thinking about that, do you have any particular thoughts on this episode? Does it touch on that or not in any particular way? I think it moves the needle quite a bit more from the man to the Superman, especially for this season. I mean, even just that line of, of Clark saying that he's not normal is, yep. is kind of moving it in that direction. And then also just moving forward to with the, the all three of the stones have now been found um, there, mm-hmm. you know, with different people, but they are identified at this point. And so there's a lot of the Superman mythos kind of moving forward in this episode. And then, of course, too, you know, talking to Jor-El, there's there's a, a, a big kind of theme with Superman in this episode, in my opinion. Yeah, I, again, I agree with all that. I definitely think that line of, you know, I'm not normal. We know it is, is an important line. And again, I just think it just goes to the inconsistency, which is consistent for people. Clark realizes, I'm not an all-American boy. I can't do these things. But he still wants to. So in this moment, he's accepted that he's not normal. But then later on, he's going to desire that he was. And again, I still think that fits the 
the push pull of the whole thing. Cause he does know he's not a normal person, but he wants it. So I think it totally fits that he here has said, I'm not normal. We're going to have to deal with it. And then in three episodes, he's going to be like, but I want to. And then, you know, that's where the push pull comes from. So, um, all right. I think that's pretty much the episode. So you now get a chance to ask your question for next week's guest uh, co-host. So my pass the torch question is uh, what should new world traveler Clark Kent bring back for Jonathan Martha as a souvenir from Shanghai? Excellent. That should be a fun one. Um, so you're feel free to kind of sign off. If you have any projects you want to plug or, you know, if you don't have your own for something you're watching or whatever you enjoy, you want to point people to, it's your chance. How can people hang out with you if they can on the internet, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So I don't have any social media still uh, as was last time. But I do have Reddit, so I'm uh, relatively frequently on. Well, I'm, I'm very frequently on the Smallville subreddit, uh, so I, I can be communicated or I can talk on there and okay. discuss with people. Yeah, I, uh, I get on there every now and then, uh, obviously to promote our episodes there. But every now and then, I'll jump in if I if I see a question that just I really do feel passionate about, I'll jump in. But I don't. I'm not as active there as I probably should be. So, have you heard about the new Smallville podcast coming soon? I have, and I was actually <laughs> talking about that. It's great. I was. I was going to ask you, I actually forgot, but I was going to ask you at the very beginning, uh, how does it feel to have inspired Michael Rosebaum and Tom Bowling <laughs> to create their own podcast? I don't know if that's exactly how that went down, but uh, <laughs> as I've said before, as a fan of podcasts and a fan of Smallville, I'm very excited to listen. As someone doing their own rewatch podcast, I'm like, well, I guess we're done. I mean, I'm going to keep <laughs> doing it, but I can't imagine our show is going to continue to grow all that much. Like, oh, we have people who listen, people tell me they love our show. I'm going to keep doing it, but the idea that maybe someday we would continue to grow. Eh, it's probably done. <laughs> maybe I, we can get a call out on Talkville. That would be fantastic. They can like put a little nod or something like, yeah. like that towards this. That would be fantastic. Cause I, cause I am sure our show is going to be very different. Like there's just going to be more of a behind the scenes. We're going to get to all, all those things. I always ask, like, why did they do this or whatever? Hopefully we'll get some of those answers, but I don't think they're going to approach the show like we do from the, this is a real situation. Why is Clark acting this way? I don't, I don't think that'll be the way they approach it, but I don't know. I'll, I'll definitely listen and find out, but I continue to stand by our name is better. Farm to Fable is a much <laughs> better is. name than Talkville. It is. I, yeah. I called that out too when I was, when I was showing my wife the trailer. Excellent. Uh, so as for me, of course, you can find me on Twitter at the RPG Academy. That's where I'm most active. We do have the Discord. It's more for RPG stuff, but I'd love to get more Farm to Fable people over there and talking about stuff. It's just a little nerd corner. We talk about all kinds of movies and TV and shows and video games and stuff that we like and we share. It's a very positive community. And I like that a lot. So if you're interested in joining, let me know. I'll send you the invite. I got a game coming out at some point in the future, Action 12 Cinema. If you're interested in role-playing games, you can support me with that at some point in the future. A Catacon this year isn't that far away. We're going to be launching our Kickstarter to um, sell badges and stuff for that in early August. So it's not too much further away than that. So that's another way you can support me. If you come to a Catacon, great. Or if you just want to throw a couple bucks as a support, I would certainly appreciate that. Uh, and then just remember, stay after the uh, scoreboard for the in- stay after the end credits for the scoreboard. Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fancast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. 
Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross, with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. All right, so total number of vehicles wrecked. We're still at 62 with no new vehicles wrecked this week. Total number of times a person has been knocked unconscious. So we're at 214 with the Countess in Lana's body using magic to knock out, maybe kill, we're going to say knock out, two of the Chinese soldiers. And then Clark flinging two other Chinese soldiers off of him. So they go unconscious. That's four. Lana, as the Countess, hits Clark with a bolt of energy, knocking him unconscious for the second time. Later, uh, she actually hits him with another surge of energy. So he goes unconscious like three times, I think. And then there's a surge of power between Lana and the Count and Clark that knocks both of them unconscious. So there's a bunch. Uh, so Lana has been knocked out 23 times so far. Lex is now at 18. Clark is now at 17. Uh, Jonathan Kent is at 12. Chloe is at 12. Martha is at six. Lionel is at three. Jason is at three. And Lois is at two. Total number of times someone goes to the hospital. We're still at 88. I'm thinking some people went this episode, but we don't hear about it. Lana's been to the hospital eight times. Jonathan Kent, seven. Chloe, six. Lionel Luther, five. Lex Luther, four. Martha, three. Chloe, or excuse me, Clark, three. Jason twice and Lois the once. And the total number of times Clark tells her show someone other than Lana's abilities, we're still at 91 with three asterisks.